You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As, as that has happened, uh, one of the things we, we try to take as seriously as possible when we get that opportunity is to open the scripture, to open the Bible we believe is God's word to us together. And, and so as a church, we've been walking through the gospel that is literally the good news of Matthew. And so I want to invite you, if you've got a smartphone or a Bible, would you make your way to Matthew chapter 8 and join me we'll, while we will pick up where we've left off. If you don't have a Bible or a, or a device that would get you access to one, uh, I want to point you to the, the, those likely a paperback Bible in the, in the tray of the seat in front of you. And so I would love for you to follow along. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. If this is one of the first times you've opened it, there is treasure for us. If this is the first or the thousandth time we've opened this, this text. And so we're going to be at the first book and that is uh, of the new Testament. And that is even the, the first of the four gospels. That is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John. And so, uh, and so we're going to pick up where we've left off in chapter eight. Of, of Matthew's gospel. And up to this point, let me give you a recap for where we've, where we've been. Uh, up to this point, the, the first couple of chapters were introduced to Jesus through his miraculous birth and his, and, and his confounding lineage, that he is, that he is as, as God taking on flesh, the incarnate son of God, he is taking the place even in the lineage and family tree of sinners. And he, we hear about his baptism, his public ministry, and, and then we even saw his first of the five prominent discourses. That is, his first uh, of the five most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, we saw in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so now we're introduced to Jesus by some of his actions. And I want to ask a couple of big questions for us today that will hopefully set the stage for what it is that Matthew means for us to see when he tells us stories about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so the first question I would ask, if, if you had a top 10 list of your greatest accomplishments, what would be on it? Right? If, if you had a top 10 list of your greatest accomplishments, what would be on it? Stop for a minute and think. I mean, what are the things you really are proud of? You really, are, you really, you really uh, take a lot of delight in thinking on, right? Uh, if you don't know the answer to those, you're, a gracious friend will help you to see this because you're trying to tell them about that all the time. Right, you're trying to slide that into the conversation as much as possible. But what are the ten most impressive things about you? If if I were to ask it that way, right? For me, like I, I'm think I'm thinking of like accomplishments in sports, right? Uh, uh, right, becoming a father, uh, right? Uh, I, I would have said the top of the list is getting my wife to marry me, right? Um, that's no longer the top of my list. I've realized that's not that impressive. The more impressive is getting her to stay married with me. As if I have anything to do with that. <laughs> what are the most impressive things about you? If there was a top 10 list of your greatest accomplishments, what would be on it? And as you think about that, begin to ask yourself maybe a follow-up. How would you tell those stories? In what order would you tell them? How would you recount them? How would you convey their meaning and significance how would you communicate to a person that they're not just a sequence of events, not just a historical event, but even more so, they have meaning. They, they give you a sense of pleasure and pride and accomplishment. Ask yourself maybe even what that list tells about you. And when you begin to think that way, now you begin to see how Matthew is telling in chapter 8 and chapter 9 
10 different miraculous acts that he has accomplished. He records 10 miracles arranged in three different groups. And in between those miraculous settings, or, or excuse me, in between those miraculous acts are, are in, in the setting there, three different accounts of discipleship that break them apart. And we saw the first of those last week. So we're going to read that together in verse 18, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 23 and to, uh, to verse 27. So as you make your way through the Bible to Matthew chapter 8, the big numbers of the chapter, the smaller numbers indicate the verses for, that were added for our ability to arrange them and, and, and find them more easily. And so on this, if, if you will, the, this is one of the, the top lists of accomplishments that Matthew tells us about Jesus so that we begin to know more about him, so that they're not just simply historic events, but we're introduced to the person of Jesus. So... I'll begin in verse 18, the first of the, let's say, little inscriptions about discipleship in the midst of his authority to perform miracles, and we'll spend the majority of our time in verse 23 through 27. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, that is of the body of water they were near. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? We believe this is God's word to us. I pray that we begin to marvel even at what he says to us today through it. Second question. If you had infinite power to do whatever you wanted, what would you do with it? If you had infinite power to do anything at all, what would you do with it? Anything, miraculous, anything you can, even anything your mind can conceive of, right? I imagine superheroes and comic books come to mind. Anything, if you could do anything you wanted, if you could accomplish anything, if you could command anything, even as the story tells us that Jesus commands nature, if you could do anything you wanted with the infinite amount of power that you have, what would you do with that infinite amount of power? 
What would that say about you? What, what does that tell us about what you really value, what you really want to accomplish, and what you really want to experience in this life? And in light of all that, we find here, if you were to ask that question to Jesus, Matthew tells us at least 10 different things he would do in chapters 8 and 9. But specifically here, while he has been up to this point teaching in powerful ways and performing miracles, casting out demons, helping people who have had a lifelong and terminal illness that, that separated them from God and from others, people who are outsiders, people, people who didn't belong, and, and people then who are called by Jesus to serve him. Jesus is performing miraculous deeds, healing them, making them new. And in the middle of that, he, in the middle of the, the, these, these powerful deeds, he calls people to drop whatever they have, whatever they would be gripping onto. We saw last week, even the things that might be holding them back, to drop those things and follow him. And so Jesus, with all the power evidently that you could possibly have, heals, restores, brings peace, and calls people to follow him. The miracles of cleansing a leper, healing a centurion servant, healing Peter's mother-in-law so that she could serve him and others. Now we find a, a stilling, a calming of the storm. Next we'll see a casting out of demons from people possessed by them, healing a paralyzed man, raising the daughter of Jairus, healing another woman with a, a very private issue, and, and then giving sight to blind and, and even giving the ability to speak to those who were unable. And so Matthew is going on from Jesus' matchless teaching, let's say in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and introducing us now to his matchless power, power over everything. And this is incredibly important because for you and for me, we don't talk about power and authority very well. And that's because you and I all can think of times and places where someone's power or authority was used in a way that hurt us, that harmed us, or at least hurt someone else. And so when we think of power and authority, especially when we think of someone having power and authority over us, it makes us, it makes us tremble, does it not? It makes us a bit nervous. And yet what we find here is a redemption of power, a redemption, a, a, a beautiful picture of what power is meant to be. Because Jesus, with his infinite power, his infinite power to teach and, and unfold the mysteries of the world and existence, is now exercised in his infinite display of power. But where does he display that power? He displays it over disease, over things that harm his people, and then he displays it even over nature. So, I want to begin with that verse 18. Did you, did you read that with me? Now, when Jesus saw the crowd, now we, we dug into this last week, and I told you, hang on to it because we'll come back to it. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, after all, he was the greatest show on earth at this point. He's performing miracles, teaching in ways no one had ever heard, which, with authority that even the people who, who would have expected to hear maybe something impressive from a teacher or a rabbi, even they were like, this is not like anything we've ever heard. And the crowd of people we saw last week, as, as if it were a living parable coming to life in this particular chapter, Jesus starts to do things that are, that are full of historic meaning, but also replete with symbolic meaning. And so in the midst of the crowd, he asks his disciples to follow him as a way of, in many ways, sim, symbolizing what, what you and I experience in following Jesus as an intentional separation from the ways of the crowd, the ways of the majority. Following Jesus involves separating ourselves from the flow where everyone else is going. He's already told us this in his powerful teaching that, that the way to life is narrow and few will find it. 
So he separates them from the crowd and gives them orders to go over to the other side. Why is that important? Well, in the powerful symbols we we encounter, one of the first ones we see here is that Jesus, it was actually Jesus' idea for them to enter into this boat. It was Jesus' idea for them to, in this case, get in a boat and go straight into a life-threatening storm. So Jesus commands. Jesus has the authority to tell people what to do. He sees and knows and understands. He is something that we are not. Such that our awe, and we see here marvel and astonishment up to this point, is rightly founded. So, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, we'll be introduced to more, more specifics about this, but, but for the purpose of this story, you need to know that a couple of these men are fishermen. That is, a couple of these men have made their living on boats. So he gets on this boat. Uh, most likely, historians tell us it's, it's probably anywhere from 25 to 35 feet long. So not a huge boat, uh, not much bigger than a, a nice pontoon boat you might be on or a, right, or, or a nice uh, wakeboard boat you might be on, right? but, but a little bit bigger and made out of wood. So he gets onto this boat with the disciples. Presumably, they know where they're going, and they know how to get to where they're going. And he says, and behold. This would have been Matthew's way of saying, now listen, right? Or, and there we were. Or, and then this happened. There arose a great storm on the sea, so that, the storm was so great, that the boat was being swamped by the waves. It was being overwhelmed now, here we have the first of the two most powerful images or symbols. Now, I, I, there's no way we're going to dig into all the symbols you find here. I encourage you. I commend this text to you. The symbolic language here that is throughout the entirety of the Old and New Testament comes to life here in a living parable. It is powerful. What we see about Jesus is amazing. The first of those symbols is the water and the waves. Now, even just a month or two ago, we were walking through the books of the Psalms, and I, I hope that you, you even remember that the, the power and the, the beauty of Jesus that, that, that we see even in the 69th Psalm is that Jesus came to descend into the depths. And the suffering sermon, servant in the 69th Psalm is crying out from the depths. Well, what depths is he talking about? Well, in that particular time and throughout the Old Testament, the, the depths of water or waves they're, they're no mystery to us. We have GPS. We have satellites, right? We, have, we, we live on the other side of lots of other people who died and explored unknown and uncharted territory, right? We, we live on the far other side of that. But for that people, water, especially the sea, represented utter chaos. It was the place that you left and never came back. And you didn't know what happened. There was no way of knowing. And so the first of these powerful symbols is here that, that Jesus invites his disciples to follow him into chaos. <laughs> Jesus, in this, in this particular passage, goes headlong into the chaos. But look at the second symbol right next to it. Also we find in the Old Testament. What is Jesus doing in the chaos? And what ironic fashion, right? He just got finished saying, right, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As if to say, like, you want to follow me, you're going to leave these things behind, but, but if you follow me, you realize I have nowhere to sleep. And what does he do immediately? Where, where, where is this symbolic, powerful sleep take place? In the middle of, smack dab in the middle of chaos. 
Leave everything behind. Follow me into chaos. And what is it that Jesus does? He sleeps. (laughs) He is asleep. We see the same picture, for example, in the fourth psalm. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Why? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, this picture of sleep and rest as a picture of God's faithfulness and presence is throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the promise we see in the book of Leviticus is that when these people delivered from bondage would would take up residence in this promised land to experience God's promises, one one of the most powerful promises over and over and over again is that when they get to this promised land, they will what? Rest. In fact, one of, the, one of the first things they're commanded to do is they're delivered from bondage is to commit one day a week to doing nothing, to resting, which might not seem like a big deal, but had you been enslaved, for example, if your whole life was bound to someone telling you to work and you had no option, then all of a sudden resting and sleeping is an act of rebellion, is it not? Right? Try that with your boss. What are you doing? Sleeping. It's like... I, I don't think you understand our relationship. And so one of the first commands that God gives these people is word to them as they are set free is to rest. You don't have to work anymore. And so he says, in in a way that, that pictures your ultimate rest, every single week I want you to do nothing. I want you to do nothing in, in some ways, as a rebellion, as a message, a prophetic, uh, excuse me, a prophetic defiance against your oppressor. I'm doing nothing. And so now as Christian, Christians, as we celebrate the Lord's Day, right, we in many ways do the same thing. As if to say as Christians, as we sing these things, hey, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do on this Lord's Day, this Sunday that commemorates something that took place that Jesus accomplished many Sundays ago? What are you going to do this Sunday to earn God's love? And you and I can answer defiantly, nothing. What are you going to do to earn God's favor today? And you and I look at the finished work of Christ and say, I think I'll take a nap. I'll just rest in that. So look at these symbolic and powerful things that, that are taking place right here that Matthew wants us to know. Jesus leads his disciples through chaos, and what is he doing? He's sleeping. He is free of fear. He's just sleeping. So, what happens next? Well, I don't mind inviting you to begin to, uh, if if you're a napping person, this may not affect you because you're really skilled at this. But for the rest of us, we're not as great at this. Um, But we can when we need to. And just ask yourself for a moment, what's it like when you nap? What are the conditions? (laughs) What are the, the, the optimal conditions or settings for you to nap well? I do not nap well. Uh, I've been told by my father one day I will have the gift of napping that he got from his father later in life and anywhere, anytime. Um, Personally, I think it was because most of those men in my family had sleep apnea and that's some uh, hypothesis, but one day I hope to nap. But if I nap, oh, cancel the day. I must have been exhausted. And when I wake up, don't, please don't expect me to be very fruitful. I'm groggy, foggy, not clear. 
And so on one hand, we see the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was truly human. He was truly, by his teaching and his ministry and miraculous work, exhausted. So tired, in fact, that in the midst of the waves, the waves that for these apostles that were chaotic and life-threatening, just rocked him to sleep. But also, I want you to see the powerful testimony of his response. They went and they woke him. Now again, just put yourself in those shoes. Someone wakes you up from a nap, a really good nap. Um, and apparently a nap you really needed, right? Someone wakes you up from a nap. What are the first things that you're going to say or do? And just for a moment here, marvel at the patience of Jesus. He wakes up, and the disciples cry out to him, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us. Our lives are being threatened. Our lives are in danger, but that we would be saved. And what does he say to them? He asks them the question. A question that I would even pose to you. Why are you afraid? Ask yourself that question now. What is it that makes you so afraid? What are you so afraid of? What's the thing that you want to accomplish, want to do, want to experience, but for, your paralyzed, but for being paralyzed by fear? What are you afraid of? Why are you so afraid, Jesus says. And, and he adds a little bit of a correction, doesn't he? Why are you afraid you have little faith? Now, this isn't a statement of quantity. It's, it's more of a statement of quality. It's not that he has, they have a small. The, the word little here simply means like, why do you have like ineffective? Or why do you have such poor faith? And then what? He rose. And instead of rebuking the disciples, what does he do? He rebukes the winds and the sea. And the result, there was a great calm. That word rebuke there, again, powerful. This is the same language we have seen and will see him used when he is casting out demons. As if to imply that, that what was happening to the disciples here was something seismic, quite literally. That's how they described the waves. They were seismic in nature. And yet, evidently, also, somehow evil, somehow even possibly demonic, Whatever they were, they were somehow in opposition to what it was that Jesus was doing so that Jesus, the language Matthew tells us, interaction with the storm is the language of rebuke. Stop that. And what a beautiful patience that he demonstrates to his disciples. Not, why did you wake me, but stands up and he rebukes the waves. What was their response? They marveled. They were astonished and asked, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, before we begin to look at some of like some applications for us to, to take from this, I want to even now, before, while your mind is fresh on it, I commend all of the possible symbols of what this might mean for you to begin to contemplate who Jesus is. I want to commend them all to you. I want to commend them to your study, to your meditation and reading throughout this week. So I want to point out just a few. Here's the first one, beginning in verse 18. Remember, I told you we'll come back to it. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. This might blow your mind here. Where Jesus plans and commands for us to go, he will accompany us to ensure our safe arrival. 
Think about it. They, they were afraid for their lives. But there's kind of a, a powerful symbol there, isn't it? One, Jesus was the one who put them there. But on the other hand, it should have caused great comfort. Hey, if Jesus is the one who put us here, if Jesus is the one who said, right, remember, do you remember what, where did he say we're going to go? Did you read in verse 18? We're going to go where? We're going to go drown in the lake? We're going to go for a boat ride? Right? We're going to... We're going to go on a thrill ride in which we, you know, come face to face with death and our own mortality, right? No, what do you say? We're going somewhere. We're going to the other side. The New Testament writers say it in a different way that uh, an encouragement that Paul gives to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you is faithful to what? Complete it. So be comforted. If this morning you're in this place seeking and wondering about Jesus, and wondering specifically what that may, may mean for your own future, take comfort at, at, the, at the perspective Matthew gives us here. What Jesus says about you, he will carry out to completion. Even the things that Jesus expects of you, even the, Jesus, the things that Jesus calls you into, make no mistake about it, Jesus' goal was not for them to drown in the lake. Jesus' goal was for them to safely arrive on the other side. And so, what Jesus has for you, what Jesus invites you to believe, what Jesus invites you to experience in this life, take heart. What he asks of us, he will complete himself. He will Again, see the powerful symbols. In the midst of chaos, be the calm, resting presence that we need. And his calm and his peace will not be overwhelmed by the chaos that surrounds you and I, that seeks to overwhelm you and I. His calm presence, his very peace will infect, overwhelm, and even rebuke the chaos that you and I face. That's especially important, maybe if you're in this room, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe, you, maybe you've got questions about Jesus, maybe you're wondering what this even means to, to call yourself a Christian, and, and I have a special encouragement to you in that, that whatever it is that you're contemplating, whatever it is that is drawing you to Jesus, I want to encourage you, the, the, it has, there is, believe it or not, there is a happy ending. And, and, and for us, it, it's not that it's too good to be true, it's, it's too good to be false. That is, it, this is too good for someone to have even made up And so, my encouragement to you, uh, Jesus not fitting into your categories is a good place to start. Did you hear the question that's at the very end after experiencing this? What sort of man is this? Man, if you're in this room with questions about Jesus, I want to encourage you. This is a good place to be. Right? When, you, when you question me or when you question other people, we, we respond very defensively, don't we? We respond with our own insecurities and fears. But there's good news here. Jesus is bigger and, and, and better than us. Whatever sort of man he is here, he can handle your questions. In fact, he does them to raise, he, he does these things to raise those questions. He does these things to, to defy and destroy many of the preconceived categories you've had. And so I, when we as a church, for example, gather together and sing and say things like the, the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world, 
Jesus died on the cross for my sin in my place. Jesus was resurrected victorious over sin, death, and hell. I know that for many of you, that's language. Those are categories that make no sense. And Jesus has done these things to begin to put cracks in them. And so I would invite you, ask why that is. Ask why those categories might be confounding. And here's, a, here's I want to presume on, on your own patience. To, let us help you answer them. Don't be afraid of that question. Whether this is the first time you've considered it or maybe you've wrestled with it for your entire life. What sort of man is this Jesus? Why did I say that out of order in that, in that sense? Well, because I know for many of you to answer that question might be terrifying. And I would go back to verse 18. There are no questions, there are no places that Jesus will lead you and I, that he will not carry us safely to our final destination. What sort of man is this? And I know that that in and of itself might be terrifying. Because you know that if this Jesus is the sort of man that you're worried or suspect that he might be, if he really is who people over the last 2,000 years have said he is, then, then notice it fits right into context with his call for you and I to leave everything behind to follow him. And so be honest with yourself that that is a loaded question. The answer to that question will change your life. In fact, if the answer to that question doesn't affect your life, you have not yet answered it. What sort of man is this Jesus that what? Even nature obeys him. Well, the answer for us throughout the Old Testament is this. It's not uncommon for the, uh, the rise of a, a godly leader or prophetic voice in the scripture to be accompanied by works of great miracles. That's not uncommon. In fact, that was... That was what accompanied, for example, the stories in First and Second Kings of Elijah and Elisha. That's the story of Moses, who, who, Moses, who Matthew seems to really be saying we ought to be thinking about. There, there really is a new exodus, and this Jesus is, is in, in, in this sense, the new Moses, the new deliverer. He will be the one that delivers us from our sin. And so it's not uncommon throughout the story of the Scripture that people would engage in miraculous acts as a demonstration that they carried with them the very authority of God. But I, I encourage you, Old Testament scholars, and I encourage the rest of you who are just curious, begin to search and see how many people in, in, in the Old Testament commanded the weather. There is only one character in the Bible who controls nature. And the Bible tells us it's because he made it. Nature was his idea. It was his invention. While you and I were making finger paints, right, albeit, you know, idealistic or impressionistic as they might be, God was crafting the cosmos. There is only one character in the Bible that controls nature. That is God himself. So hear what Matthew is saying. This one is not like the other ones. God is uniquely present here. God has taken on flesh. Jesus has the power over the universe. Now this shouldn't surprise for us for Christians because Romans uh, chapter 11 says that of him and through him and to him are all things. 
that all things came into being in Christ. Christians call then Jesus the second person of the Trinity. It's our way of, of beginning to put this confounding mystery into words. There's only one person who had control over the universe, over nature, and that is God. And yet now we hear with this question ask, then what sort of man is this? This is one who is truly man, asleep, tired, exhausted in a boat, and yet truly God with power over nature. The second person of the Trinity helped create the wind, was a part of inventing, thinking up all that exists. What sort of man is this? I mean, you and I would think, you and I would think miraculous things about a person who could just predict the weather, couldn't we? Like if if we saw someone who could just predict it, and, and you know this, if you live in the middle of the country, right? In between these two mountain ranges, if you could predict the weather, you'd be on to something. What a, what a powerful act of providence even. Right now, there are people, as we speak, in, in Canada, embracing themselves in Florida, and around the world because of this very thing. If you could even just predict what was going to happen, your life would be changed. But what if you encountered someone who had power over it? We get pictures of Job here, right? As as, as, as Jesus, who, or uh, excuse me, we get pictures of Jonah here. As Jesus, in this sense, is the fulfillment of this sign of Jonah. Jonah, who was rebelling against God, and yet in the midst of the storm, what does he do? He cries out to God about the weather, about the waves. What does Jesus do in this as he's woken from his sleep? He tells the waves what to do. Jesus has the power over nature. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus will not fit into your categories. And that's a good place to start. He's not like anyone. He's not like anything. He is unique. The the Bible calls that holy, set apart, distinct from. He is completely and totally set apart from us. Now, another encouragement that goes with that, having confusion and questions about Jesus is a great place to start as well. Right? Jesus asks about their confusion in verse 26. Why are you afraid? Right? As if to say, like, haven't you figured this out? Haven't you seen me exercise a power and authority in all that I've done up to this point? Do you really think that I've done all of these things for us to simply drown in the middle of this, in this body of water? No. And so if you come with confusion and questions about Jesus, be encouraged. That's a really good place to start. That's where the apostles start here. That's where these disciples in this boat, in a life-threatening situation, start. Jesus, save us. What's his question then? It's confusing for us as well. Why are you afraid? What is it that you're so afraid of? What is it that grips you with fear? What uncertainty controls you and paralyzes you? What is it that when you think on it, even physiologically, you you start to experience change? Because even the thought of it has a powerful grip and effect on you. And Jesus wants us to think on this. 
If the one who commands the wind and the waves has defeated death for us, what have we left to fear? Hear the story that Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Hear the story that Matthew is telling us about the power of Jesus. And hear what his exercise of power and authority tells us about what Jesus is like. Remember that question, what would you do with your power and your authority? What would you do if you could have anything you want? Notice, Jesus has authority over nature. He could do whatever he wants. I mean, and this, and this is a question you and I probably wrestle with. Like, God, if you're good, why don't you do this? Even now, like, God, if you have power over the wind and the waves, then, wh- then why, why are there hurricanes? Right? Why, why won't you silence these things that are going to take people's lives and cause great devastation? Primarily because what Jesus came to accomplish wasn't just about the weather. After all, the chaos in which we now live, the unpredictability of weather, even that is an evidence, it's an indicator that you and I live in a world that is broken. You and I live in a world that has fallen, that the effects of sin can be seen everywhere, that unfair and awful things happen. Things happen to people with no power to stop them. And that includes, even though you and I have gone to great lengths to avoid this, nature. It still has the ability to overpower us in its unpredictability. That was the truth of this particular body of water. Water that evidently immediately became what was once beautiful and picturesque, life-threatening because of the change in the weather. And Jesus exercises power and rebukes those wind and waves that would destroy his disciples' lives to get our attention. Because we come and we ask, Jesus, you have a power to do whatever you want to with nature. What are you going to do with it? And we sang about it just a moment ago. What did Jesus do to demonstrate his power over the natural order of things? When he was betrayed and left to die naked, completely exposed, completely abandoned, even experiencing the abandonment of the Father, completely overwhelmed by death and the grave. What did he do with his power over nature? What was the lesson he wanted to teach you and me about his authority, about his matchless omnipotence over all things? It was to subdue death. Do you hear this prophetic rebuke? It's as if Jesus, looking at the waves, goes, right, you can hear the rebuke, right? Again, I don't, I don't mind. Using your imagination. You wake up from a nap, right? He wakes up from a nap, and he's like, right, uh, the other gospel writers tell us, peace, be still. Imperatives, do what I say. And immediately, the lake is like glass. He rebukes nature, not so that you and I would trust him as the world's greatest weatherman, but so that we would have our ears perked and our eyes open to see that his authority over nature he exercises to destroy the one thing you and I cannot. Look at the picture here. Summarize discipleship. Follow Jesus. We come face to face, face to face with our own death. And what does Jesus do? He saves those who call out to him. Even in his sleep. It's a beautiful picture of like the psalmist we saw where, where in, in distress we cry out to God, God, arouse yourself. Wake up as though God can't see. But even in his sleep, he delights to wake and to find his 
followers facing death and deliver them completely. Jesus is greater than a weatherman. Jesus is greater even than a creator of the cosmos. Jesus takes his authority over nature and begins to use it for our benefit. The Gospel of Mark says that what happens is that they were overwhelmed with fear when he tells the story. That is that at one moment they had fear of their own lives. But then the Gospel of Mark says that, in, in fact, after the wind and the waves were calmed, it said they, if they feared exceedingly, as if to say they had even greater fear. Because even though the threat of nature had been removed, suddenly they had this powerful increase of the fear of Jesus. What is this man? Confusion and questions are a great place to start. Jesus and what he does confounding our categories is a great place to start. And I can commend to you in light of this story, when, not if, when the difficulties of this life come, you can trust Jesus. Not if. And this is a, man, a confounding idea about the sovereignty of Jesus, isn't there? Whose idea was it for them, whose idea was it them to be in the mess? That'll mess with you, brother. You think Jesus wants me to be in this mess? Well, I don't know. If the mess is what it takes for you to stop trying to save yourself and to look to him, then by the mystery of grace, yes. Because after all, this, this is confounding, isn't it? These were fishermen. These were experienced fishermen. They, they knew how to handle a boat. They'd made a career out of it. And what a profound metaphor for you and me that the thing that they were accustomed to ended up being the thing that made them feel the most helpless. For people like me, it means that the storm isn't all bad. My own self-reliance is a frustrating and stubborn presence. My own sense of accomplishment and achievement is a stubborn and unrelenting presence in my life. And I can tell you, like the disciples, when those things start to fade when the trials and troubles of life, even the things that I'm kind of familiar with and I think I have a hold on, kind of have the experience to think I can get through it, when they start to crumble and fail, crying out to Jesus, save me or I will perish, is the sure bet. Lastly, remember what I told you? We'll see this in the next couple of weeks. Matthew is introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people that don't get Jesus, right? So up to this point, he's introduced us to, you know, this is, this is the beauty. He's introduced us to, to the outsider, right? He's introduced us to the unclean. He's introduced us to those who, are, who he, he, he heals to serve. And then he introduces us, did you catch that? To someone who doesn't get him, namely the scribes. So you've got like the outsider. The outsider evidently gets Jesus. That's an encouragement for any of us who felt like an outsider, right? The, the, the person who, who you wouldn't expect, the, the really, the person with all the answers, right? The, the, the religious, you know, fix your glasses, goody two-shoes. He's the one who misses it. They're the ones who miss it. So we get this picture of here are the ones who get Jesus and here are the ones who don't get Jesus. So we got, here's the ones who get Jesus. Here's some who don't get it. And then did you catch what and who gets Jesus in this? Inanimate objects. The wind and the waves have no life or personality of their own. They are dead. 
They are utterly without life. It's as if to say the scribe doesn't get it. The scribe doesn't hear the voice of Jesus, but dead things do. And when you know that, you have peace. Ephesians 1 says it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, you can hear Jesus waking up. What? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Scribes don't get it. Dead things do. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, have given us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He set it aside, nailed it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Do you hear him? Do you hear the rebuke of Jesus? This will have no power over my disciples. And when you know that you're dead without him, that's when you become fully at peace in the storm. Jesus has control over the natural world, and he exerted it. Hear him say to you and me, to communicate this, I'll get you through this. Your sin is not too much for me. It seems bleak right now. The wind and the waves are not alive. They're dead. Until Jesus speaks to them. And this morning, wherever you are, when, not if, when, the distress of this life brings you face to face with your own mortality, with your own sin, with your own brokenness, with your own frailty. Hear the good news. When Jesus speaks, dead things all of a sudden become the context for peace. Let's pray together and let's thank God for that. Jesus, thank you so much that you are good and kind. Jesus, thank you that in this moment you did not rebuke the disciples, but the rebuke was to the animosity that assailed them. Jesus, thank you that this in so many ways is a picture, has symbols for us to be encouraged by and edified by. And so I, I pray that even now, as maybe some in this room, they wouldn't call themselves Christian, and maybe they have the same kinds of questions these disciples did. Maybe they're they're, they're compelled to hear more about Jesus and wonder more about Jesus. Would you, in a way that only you can, comfort them with your own voice? Give them a sense of peace. Give them a sense of assurance that we may not have the answer to these questions now. But you will be faithful to carry us through. Might we look to you this morning, even if it's for the first time. And say, what are you? Who, who are you really? And might we hear with the authority and power over sin, death, and hell. I am the one who brings life. I am the one who saves those who cry out to me. I am the one that when you look to me, you will become, begin to realize that 
we were going to the other side and I was going to be with you the whole way to carry you safely. Maybe for some of us, we know that. We intellectually could assent to that. We know that's true, but right now, there are waves swamping the boat. I pray a special comfort for those in this room that even now the waves seem overwhelming. As the psalmist cried, we, we are crying out from the depths. It's as if they are over us. They will, they will take us. Would you remind us that the one who commands the winds and the waves has taken our place and died for our sin? The greatest enemy that we face, the one we cannot outrun, the one that each of us will face whether we like it or not, that enemy death is subject to Jesus. Would you give comfort to to us in this room that as the waves overwhelm, we would see and trust you. May we turn to you. May we see you as the the one who is peaceful and restful in the storm because you command it. We find hope and life in you because you command even death. Thank you that these things are true for us in Jesus. Help us now to receive this gift by faith. Help us to celebrate it. Help us to sing about, tell about, and live in light of this gift of resurrection. Thank you you grant this to us freely, patiently, to all who call upon you. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.